My goal was to expose you to a number of different ideas that are sort of intramural discussions, discussions among believers as to uh, different approaches to what it means to be spiritual. And we talked about some common denominators. All of them emphasize that the spiritual life is progressive. It's not instantaneous. All of them emphasize that, that the, the Word of God is important and, and obedience over sin is important and the role of the Spirit is vital. For our last two sessions, we want to become more biblical. Not that we, weren't, we were anti-biblical, but we want to look at some specific biblical passages together and uh, explore uh, what some of the biblical texts say regarding the spiritual life. So I hope you brought your Bibles today, because we'll be looking at them a little bit more. Before we get started, I want to say, do two things, I want to pray, but uh, Emily Yee, where is, I'm sorry? She was here this morning. Well, she uh, provided a lovely basket for Janie and I, and uh, we wanted to express our thanks, so maybe you can pass that on to her. So. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin. Father, again, we come into your presence so grateful for just this community of believers that can gather together, can uh, laugh together, can sing together, can pray together, and can study your word. I thank you for our common purpose in growing in Christ and reaching out to a lost world and our common hope of one day being reunited with Christ and becoming like him as we see him who he is. Father, as we look into your word, I pray that again we will sense the presence of your spirit in the things that we say today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me mention, uh, kind of in summary, some myths about spirituality that um, often arise in these discussions. One of these we've just touched on. But one common myth is it happens instantaneously. And I hope you've learned over, over our discussion the last couple of times that, though we might wish this were true, it isn't. One of the synonyms that some use, and I, I appreciate very much, for the spiritual life is spiritual maturity. And just like physical maturity or emotional maturity in human development requires time, the same is true for spiritual maturity. It takes time. It takes uh, time to know the Word. It takes time to experience life and to grow amid, amid the adversities and trials of life. Um, but you know, it, it, sometimes maturity happens quicker than we will give it credit for. We're going to be looking at a minute, in a minute at a passage from 1 Thessalonians. And one of the things that is remarkable to me about the Thessalonian church is they were a fairly mature church. Paul commends them for their healthiness, spiritually speaking. And yet, by the t when he wrote the letter, they were only about one year old in the Lord. He had spent about six months with them. And then he had been, uh, you know, kicked out and went 
went to Berea and then went to Athens and then ended up in Corinth. And, and he writes from Corinth to see how they're doing in the midst of adversity. And the, if you read that little letter, the amount of theological knowledge that they have, the amount of maturity in, in sharing their faith in the midst of adversity for a church only one year old is remarkable. So, it's a myth to say, boy, the minute I accept Christ or the minute I have some spiritual experience, I'm spiritual. It, ha- it doesn't happen instantaneously. But the other side is that it doesn't take 20, 30 years to become spiritually mature. And that's when Paul often says, you know, everybody, every Christian starts out as a baby. But you've, Corinthians, you've been babies far too long. And so we need that balance between the, I think, the myth of I can be instantly spiritual, but realize that growth happens much more quickly than sometimes we realize. A second myth is that it's is to say that it's usually expressed in supernatural power. There are some traditions that emphasize if I can have a, a, a supernatural experience, perhaps with speaking in tongues or some other kind of, of, of vision or, or miraculous event, that's, what's, that's what being really spiritual is. Or some kind of, of, of mystical experience. And that happened in the history of the Old Testament believer and the New Testament as well. But we also see many cases where it's expressed in the development of character. Of character qualities. And so, though it may have its, some supernatural expression, very often spirituality is more ordinary. It's like walking with God. The third myth of which some of us in my tradition, and I include myself, can be guilty, is to think it's only exhibited in Bible knowledge. Or to put it another way, If I can just get enough Bible knowledge, then I've got my spiritual life taken care of. Now, don't get me wrong on this one. I am not minimizing the importance of Bible knowledge. I think it's absolutely essential to the spiritual life. I wouldn't be president of Multnomah University, where our motto is, if it's Bible you want, you want Multnomah, if I didn't think the Bible was important. But one of the dangers is to think, all I need is Bible knowledge. Remember, the spiritual life is a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. And like any relationship, you need to have knowledge about that person. But knowledge alone is not enough, is it? So, when I met my wife, Jannie, those many years ago back at Westmont College, I found I had a great desire to learn all I could about her. I wanted to meet her mother and her father. I wanted to know her hobbies, her interests. I wanted to meet her brother and her family. I was interested in her GPA in high school. Well, not, not really. Um, I, I became very hungry to know all kinds of things about her. Why? Because I wanted to write a term paper? No, I, I was interested in a relationship. And I was, I, I had a hunger to know 
all I could about her. But that wasn't the end. The end was a relationship with her. And that's very similar, I think, to the spiritual life. How can we have a relationship with God if we don't want to know anything about Him? And what's our infallible source of information about God and His Son Christ? It's found in the Word. But just to have knowledge doesn't guarantee relationship, does it? There needs to be the development of that personal relationship through the other disciplines like prayer. So, uh, there are many people that think, boy, spiritual is, being spiritual is I can sign a doctrinal statement and agree with these statements. And that's, that's not sufficient. That's a, that's a central foundation, but we're talking about a relationship. So what I want to do, putting aside some of those uh, myths, I want us to look at some passages of Scripture, what I call the four spiritual mandates. As far as I can find, there's only four commands in the New Testament that relate to the Holy Spirit. And if some of you can find, ever find some other ones, well, let me know. Um, but here they are. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, don't quench the Spirit. Or the NIV says, don't put out the Spirit's fire. The second one, Ephesians 4.30, don't grieve the Spirit of God. The third one, found twice in Galatians and some other places, walk in the Spirit. And then the fourth one, found in Ephesians 5.18, And I've translated it, be be spirit-filled, because we want to talk more in detail about it. Now, today, I just want to look at these first three. So, I hope you have your Bibles, and uh, we will look at Ephesians 5 uh, tomorrow morning. So, we'll cover that last one in our final time together. So, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Thessalonians 5.19. The first of three commands we'll look at tonight that that deal with the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned, this is a remarkable book because it's talking about a remarkable church. I would sub I would kind of title this book Hope for a Healthy Church. And uh, if you when you read the book of First Thessalonians you'll discover that it's, um, the first three chapters are very personal. Paul really opens up uh, his own uh, reflections about his ministry, brief as it was, with this young church. It's amazing how much he loved them and how, how much he longed to see them. And he, he gives us, especially in chapters 1 and 2, insights into his philosophy of ministry, how he ministered. Uh, out there in, in, uh, uh, on his missionary journeys. He says some, some very remarkable things. Remember how I said in, in many of his letters he will give a compliment to the church and about the best thing he could find to say about the Corinthians is, is uh, you're holy and you've been sanctified. But here he, he says many things. In fact, he, they, they possess the three great virtues that Paul commends. They, they possess faith, they possess love for one another and for Christ, and they possess hope. Now, they've got a little more to learn about the blessed hope. And so one of the things he talks about in this letter is the, the rapture, the second coming. But for a young church facing 
adversity, when the apostle has been forced to leave prematurely, they are remarkably healthy. And in chapters 4 and 5, he gives a number of instructions to the church. And this passage is found at the very end. Uh, verses 12 through 22. I'm going to read these. Follow along. And hang on to your chairs, because there's, as far as I can tell, 17 commands here. We're just going to look at uh, one of them. It says, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. Eighteen exhortations to a healthy church. Let me just suggest kind of a way to break these down. Um, the first three exhortations in 12 to 13 are exhortations for fellowship. I like to call them. Those are, those are exhortations to people in the church as to how to relate to their leaders. And Pastor Joe hasn't put me up to talking about this passage, but, but it relates very much to how we as followers in the church should relate to our leaders. Respect those who work hard among you. Hold them in highest regard because of their work. And then I think live in peace with each other is a command to help your leaders. Why is that? Because we make their work so much easier if we're not causing trouble with one another. So one of the best things you can do for Pastor Joe is to be at peace with each other. That frees him up to do the ministry of the Word and discipling and leading in worship and so on that he needs to do. So three exhortations for fellowship. Then 14 to 15, I think, are six exhortations for leadership. I think these are what the leaders in the church should do. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Boy, there's a command. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. I think those are some of the responsibilities of those who have authority to intervene in difficult situations, to help, to warn, to encourage. Now, what's interesting about this is he doesn't really say, now we ask you, laity, you know, respect those who work hard. And we tell you, leaders. He uses the word brothers for both. So my, my idea that he's giving exhortations to followers first and then leaders is an, is an implication I'm drawing, though he, the word brothers is the same. 
So, I could be wrong, that's what I'm telling you. But it shouldn't surprise us that whether he's talking about followers or leaders, there's a sense in which we are all ministers in the body of Christ, aren't we? So I think he uses the same title, brothers, to emphasize there's not a rigid hierarchy. We're all to work together in community with one another. But certainly there are some that are given responsibility before the Lord to, to lead, and, and the rest of us have the obligation to follow. Then in verses 16 to 22, he gives... Eight exhortations for community living. For living in community. Three of them deal with spiritual devotion. Look at verse 16. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's pretty great, isn't it? Be joyful all the time. Pray all the time. Be thankful all the time. And if someone ever asks you, you know, what's the will of God for my life? Take him to these verses. Because that's what he says. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So next time someone asks, you know, can you help me to find out what God's will is for my life? Just take him to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17. Easy. This is God's will for your life. Always be joyful. Always be prayerful. Always be thankful. Now, that's usually not what people are looking for when they ask. They want to know, now, should I go to Multnomah or stay at home? Should I get married or not? Should I go to the mission field? They usually think of vocational decisions, and I understand that. But it's interesting how much Scripture emphasizes character rather than vocation when it talks about the will of God. So, I'm kind of joking with you, but that's what the text says. Be joyful always. But have you ever thought what it would be like in any church, in your church? And I don't have any reason to think otherwise, but if, if every church were simply characterized by these three things, always joyful, always prayerful, always thankful. I mean, if that characterized living hope, I mean, you'd be as famous as Willow Creek. Well, I I don't know if that's a good thing to say or not. Um, but a church that is characterized that way would be, would be um, the center of incredible attention. Because isn't that really what people are complaining about when the, when the topic of Christianity comes up? They often say, well, you know, I, I don't really have any problems with Jesus. I just don't like Christians very well. Have you ever heard that? I hear that a lot in Portland. And unfortunately, in many churches I'm familiar with, that's true. They're not full of joy. They're not full of prayer. They're not full of thanksgiving. But rather, they're, they're full of all kinds of other things. Dissension, division, hatefulness. And I've often wondered if we would take even these three things, and that would characterize us. I think the word would get out as it was getting out with the Thessalonians. And their reputation was spreading not only through their city, but through the region. Now we come to verse 19. 
Well, I think he's talking about spiritual discernment. Here's where he says, Don't quench the Spirit. Don't treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. So, what's the context of this command? The context of this command is the body of Christ. Notice virtually all of these commands are given to the church. Yes, there's individual application to my life. But this idea of not quenching the Spirit has primarily a corporate or a body of Christ context. And it relates very closely to discernment and particularly the gift of prophecy. But I think... I think the gifts of the Spirit is really the underlying doctrine that's at work here. So that we live together in the body of Christ. And uh, one of our responsibilities, and one of the gifts that we receive, is to exercise the gifts of the Spirit that are available to us. Now remember... These gifts are not given for our individual good. Though the gifts have individual benefit. If you have the gift of mercy, you can't, you don't really just serve yourself. The whole gift of mercy is to reach out. But does it benefit you? Do you get, do you get enjoyment? Do you get satisfaction? Do you get, you get a sense of, of uh, affirmation when you, sh- when you extend the gift of mercy. Absolutely. But the gift of mercy makes no sense if you're just doing it for yourself. Same with teaching. Same with evangelism. Same with the gift of helps. All of the gifts are designed to reach out and impact others. They have a benefit to yourself. But if you're doing something just... And you're saying, well, I'm exercising my spiritual gift, but it's just benefiting you. Then that's really not a proper use of the gift, is it? Because spiritual gifts are given to make the body of Christ function in all of its diversity smoothly. So, I think what he's dealing with here is don't forbid the legitimate manifestation of the Spirit among believers. Now, I think it has partly to do with the assembly when they're together and when, the, the, when spiritual gifts are exercised. It, could, it, it seems to have specific reference to the gift of prophecy. Um, and I think the gift of prophecy was exercised different in those days than it is today. I happen to believe that, that the... Uh, Uh, that the gift of prophecy was necessary before the Word of God was completely revealed. Now that we have the Word of God, I think we could still have people with the gift of prophecy, but it's it's going to be based on the interpretation and the exposition of the Word rather than on new revelations, primarily. Are there possible exceptions to that? I'm I'm open that there may be. But I think generally... uh, when, when the apostles talk about the ministry of the word and the prophecy of the word, for us, the application is the written word that needs to be explained and applied. I don't know if there was a, 
examples in the Thessalonian church where there was quenching, there was putting fire on the manifestations of the Spirit. The exercise of spiritual gifts. We don't know that much about the church. And the church seems to be pretty healthy. Um, But that seems to be one of the applications. Don't forbid the legitimate manifestations of spiritual gifts in the church. Now, I think in many of our churches, it's probably not a case where we were uh, finding someone who's effective and undermine them and get them to shut up. Now, that, that has happened in churches that I'm aware of. Um, I have seen church situations where uh, the pastor has been jealous of a lay leader whose Sunday school class was beginning to be very popular. And uh, I remember a situation where actually that person was asked to leave the church. And from what I could tell, it really was a matter of jealousy. Here was a man, he wasn't seminary trained, but he studied the word. He was, had a gift of teaching. People were coming to his class. I think the pastor was a little jealous. And uh, the board asked this teacher to leave. That would be a case, it seems to me, where... There's a quenching of the spirit. Here's a man gifted. And, you know, in this case, the leadership takes a move to to quench it. I think that's a violation of this command. Now, most churches don't do that. But they can do it in more subtle ways. But maybe maybe the, the way in which we quench the spirit the most is simply not encouraging people to really exercise their spiritual gifts. Or to know what they are. And uh, as I've talked to many of you, it seems to me there's a healthy emphasis in living hope, in getting people involved and to serve in a variety of ways, and to understand what your spiritual gifts are, and to cultivate them, and to, and to utilize them for the benefit of the body of Christ. There's a lot of questions about spiritual gifts that come up, aren't there? Um, how many do you have? I've heard people argue, well, you can only have one because, you know, there's, you're only one part of the body in this metaphor of the body. Well, I, I look at Paul and it seemed like he had a whole handful of spiritual gifts to me. Uh, do you get one at a time and do, do sometimes they, they lapse and you get different gifts? Or is it just you always had that gift but it, you never were aware of it? I don't know the answer to that and I'm not sure I need to. I know in my own, in my own life... When I became a faculty member at Multnomah, the last thing I ever wanted to do was to be an administrator. Faculty sort of are trained to hate administrators. No, we don't really hate them. But uh, that was the last thing I wanted to do. Um, But I was a faculty member about ten years. And we had started the seminary. And then the founding dean of our seminary resigned to take a position over in Israel as the president of the Institute for Holy Land Studies. We had just started the process of accreditation. It didn't look like the board was moving to find a new dean, and we, we felt we needed one. So I'll never forget, we, we met at a faculty member's house one evening. And we to, to try to decide, what are we as a faculty, what can we do to, to make sure that the seminary, which is just getting started, has some leadership to carry it where it needs to go? And so as we talked, we, we played what I call 
uh, administrative musical chairs. And um, it was, it, it, the music stopped and I was left standing. It's kind of what happened. Um, others compared it to the last supper, supper. Lord is it I, Lord is it I, and ended up being me. But uh, I agreed to try for two years to take on, uh, take the position of the dean of the seminary. I had no desire. I was convinced I didn't have any gifts. Administ- I didn't have the gift of administration. But there was a need. And so after prayer and Janie's uh, affirmation, to sa- said, I'll, I'll do it for t- two years. It's really interesting what happened. After two years, I discovered I really enjoy this. I was able to continue my teaching, but I found I enjoyed working with the faculty to to bring consensus, to develop new programs. I even found I I enjoyed working with the accrediting agency. And you have to be a little crazy to enjoy something like that. So I I never really figured out how the spiritual gift fit, it, fit into that. I didn't know whether it was something I always had and I just had never stirred it up. Or whether the Lord gave me a new spiritual gift. But you know, it doesn't really matter. Here was an opportunity. I felt directed by the confirmation of others and through prayer and the confirmation of my wife to move into that position. And I enjoyed it. I found success. And I think that's one of the keys to the spiritual gifts. If you're convinced you have a spiritual gift, but every time you practice it, you see no success spiritually and you hate it, you know, that may mean that could, might not be your spiritual gift. Now, you still may need to do it. Remember that a lot of spiritual gifts are also commands. Right? Every one of us is commanded to do the work of an evangelist. But not, of us, not all of us have the gift of evangelism. So that means, well, I don't have the gift, so I, I never have to... Witness to any non-believer again? No. Got to do that. But sometimes you discover your gift to this by rolling up your sleeves and getting to work. And as you see affirmation, as you see spiritual fruit, as you see uh, enjoyment, that may be an indication that that's your gift. So I believe the primary application here has to do with the body. And we haven't said much about that. It's interesting, the traditions that we talked about really don't include very strongly the body of Christ as a key element to spiritual growth. And I think that's a mistake. If you come away with nothing more from this evening's session, come away with this. We cannot grow alone. We cannot grow spiritually alone. We are part of a body. We've got to be connected to the head who's Christ. But we are a part of a body. God never intended us to grow in isolation. That doesn't mean you don't have quiet time alone. You need that. But you will never grow unless you're with other believers who help you to grow, who uh, exhort you, who correct you, who encourage you. And some of you have ministries... Because of experiences that you have had, you can minister to hurt and broken people that others cannot. There are, there are people at Multnomah that because of, of, of brokenness and experiences that they have had, they can minister to students in ways I never can. 
Now, I can minister in other ways. But we are a body. And we grow by being in connection to one another. So, don't quench the Spirit. Remember, we grow in community. And don't either... either uh, um, directly or indirectly undermine the Spirit's working, but rather encourage people to identify and use their gifts for the body of Christ. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, second, don't grieve the Spirit of God. Turn over to Ephesians 4.30, if you would. I love this verse because it tells us something about the Holy Spirit that you don't always think of when you think of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. Uh, What a funny metaphor. It's the word wind. The Spirit's like the wind, Jesus says. But don't grieve the Spirit is wonderful because it gives a personal dimension to the Spirit. And the Spirit is a person. He's not a force. He's not the breath of God. He's not an influence, though He does those things. He is a full person, member of the Trinity, eternal, divine. And He can be grieved. This came home to me really vividly one time. I was preaching, I was teaching a class at a church uh, when I first came to Portland back in the 80s. And in fact, one of the elders of the church was in the class. And it was a class on the Holy Spirit. And uh, I, I started off by mentioning that the, uh, that the Spirit was a person who is a member of the Trinity. And uh, this elder raised his hand. He said, you know, I always thought that the Spirit was just a force. I almost dropped my Bible. I was so shocked. So... Trying to think quickly, you know, what are you going to say? The first verse that came to my mind was Ephesians 4.30. Adam turned to it, where it talks about, don't grieve the Spirit. And I asked the question, how can you grieve a force? How can you grieve the breath of God? How can you grieve an influence? No, grieving only makes sense if this is a personal individual. And to his credit, he said, you know, I, I never read that before. He was uh, needed a little more training, I think, to be an elder. But uh, I love the Lord, but had ne- just never been taught, never thought about it. So this is a wonderful passage just to understand that the Spirit of God can be hurt, can be grieved. Let me just point out a couple things about this passage. Um, chapters 4 and 5, uh, long chapters on teaching and on instruction on how to live, are united by the little phrase, walk. Now, I'm using the NIV, and they don't help me out a lot, because they translate it in different ways. Uh, But I'll often translate it like live, or something. But actually, Paul's word walk kind of becomes the the mileposts for his argument throughout chapters 4 and 5. For example, look at chapter 4, verse 1. We urge you, literally, to walk worthy of your calling. So, 
the, as he begins these instructions, he talks about how we're to walk worthy. Verse 17, he says, I tell you, no longer walk as Gentiles in unholiness. So walk worthy, don't walk as Gentiles, is the middle of chapter 4. Chapter 5, he says, be imitators of God and live a life of love. Walk in love. 5.8, he says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then verse 15, be very careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. If you want a handy little outline of chapters 4 and 5, you can follow it with the words walk. Walk worthy. Walk not as the Gentiles. Walk in love. Walk as children of light. Walk in wisdom. Those are the major themes that he talks about. Our passage, Ephesians 4.30, occurs in the no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. It's then a context of what to avoid and what will hurt the Spirit of God. What behaviors to avoid. Verse 25 to 28, he mentions three things. And, they, and most of these deal with the mouth, deal with the tongue. Therefore, he says, put off falsehood and speak the truth. For we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. And don't give the devil a foothold. He who steals, steal no longer, but work doing something with his hands. Don't lie. Don't get out of control in your anger. In other words, there's a legitimate place for anger, but don't let it get out of control and don't steal. Then verse 29. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building up one another. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Rather, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as Christ forgave you. What he's saying is, don't engage in activities, primarily with your mouth, with your tongue, with attitudes of anger that will grieve the Holy Spirit. What a motivation. We can define it this way. Don't do sinful things to others because that saddens the Spirit of God. And this is the only place where this command is used. This is the only place where we're seeing that the Spirit can be grieved. We know that God can be grieved. See that in the Old Testament. Um, but this is the only place. And it's interesting, it's in connection with the words we say to other people. It's not sexual sins, though those are unpleasing. It's, it's anger. It's lying. It's unwholesome talk. It's worthless talk. It's talk that doesn't build up. That grieves the Spirit. And underlying it, it's bitterness, anger, 
slander, and malice. Rather, do you want to bring joy to the Holy Spirit? Be kind and compassionate and forgiving to one another. I don't need to tell you that some of the greatest uh, damage to the church and to individuals comes because of what we say. Comes because of our tongue. What does James say about the tongue? He says, isn't it amazing that with such a small organ in your mouth, you can bless on the one hand and curse on the other. He said, it is like a fire set on fire from hell that can bring destruction. What, a, what damage a small thing like the tongue can do? How important it is within the body of Christ to make sure that the words that we say, the attitudes we have, don't hurt one another, but don't grieve the Spirit of God. What a motivation. And what a comfort that the Spirit of God is a real person. He indwells you. And He can be saddened. I mean, I, I could understand if, if, if it said, don't, don't anger the Spirit of God. Don't upset the Spirit of God. Don't bring judgment on the Spirit of God. I mean, I don't understand all of those. But don't grieve the Spirit is a whole different approach, isn't it? It means the Spirit comes alongside as our advocate. And He makes Himself vulnerable to us in our walk. And if we say things to other people whom He loves and dwells as well, it grieves Him. And we don't want to grieve God's Spirit. I'm running out of time, but there's one more passage. Galatians 5. Turn to Galatians 5 real quickly. If I were to pick one passage or one phrase that I think summarizes more than any other our relationship to the Spirit, it would be the phrase, walk in the Spirit. And we saw the word walk in Ephesians. But I think this is a more comprehensive command, even then, don't quench the Spirit or don't grieve the Spirit, as important as those, as those are. Galatians, uh, this command is found within a, a, uh, a discussion of our freedom in Christ. And actually, there's two different commands found in Galatians. One is Galatians 5.16. And let me just uh, make sure I get it here. So I say, Paul says, live by the Spirit. That's the NIV again. Literally, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So the context is, do you want an antidote to, to uh, sinful desires and rather be a fruit bearer? Walk by the Spirit. Now, the word he uses here is very interesting. There's, because the word he uses here is different than a couple of verses later. This is the word, and I even put a little, little I put the Greek word up there. Uh, peripateo. 
Peripateo means to walk around. If any of you took philosophy in college and were introduced to Greek philosophers, there's a number of philosophers that are called the peripatetic philosophers. I won't ask for a show of hands as to who's heard this. But philosophers like Socrates were called peripatetic philosophers because they didn't have a classroom. They literally walked around and they had disciples that followed them, listening to their wisdom as they walked. Jesus was a peripatetic rabbi, which means what? He walked around. He didn't have a classroom. He walked by the Sea of Galilee. He walked through Samaria. He walked into Capernaum. Sometimes he met in the house. Sometimes he was on a fisherman's boat. Sometimes he was out in the wilderness. He walked around and his disciples followed him. That's the word here. So Paul says, I want you to walk around with the Spirit. What does that mean? I think the implication is, stay close to the Spirit every day. I love this term. Walking implies you put one foot in front of the other. It's a daily, continuous relationship with the Spirit. You don't just touch base once every week. That's not walking with the Spirit. The disciples didn't, you know, spend Sunday with Jesus and then the rest of the day went out fishing. No, they left their nets. They came and they walked around with Jesus. They lived with Him. And that's the way Paul ministered too. He came in and he, he lived with the people day by day. That's one of the meanings of walk with the Spirit. Is that you're with Him, you're in touch with Him every day. And your, your spiritual life is like a walk in which you're walking with the Spirit every day. In 525... We have the phrase repeated, but there's a different word that's there. Let me read it. He's just given the fruit of the Spirit. Then he says, since we walk by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Notice this is a different word for walk. This is the Greek word stoikomen. It means walking in formation. So, Galatians 5.16 is walking around with. Galatians 5.25 is walking in formation and keeping in step with the Spirit. The implication here is different, but I think both of them are part of our spiritual life. I think the implication here is live according to the Spirit's standard of holiness. He is, Paul has just explained, here are the deeds of the flesh that should not be part of your experience. But rather, you should be the, allowing the Spirit to cultivate the nine fruit of the Spirit. That means that you walk in line with the Spirit, not in line with the world. And it's like you're in formation. It's like you're soldiers. And you're walking according to a standard. A good difference would be if you were... Uh, driving your car late at night, you uh, discovered that you kind of passed over the, the middle lane and a policeman pulled you over. They were suspicious because you were out late and you kind of looked like you were weaving. So they would ask you to walk the line. What kind of walk would they have in mind here? 
let's go for a little walk, you know, can't you walk around with me? No. They want to see if you could demonstrate that you're not drunk by walking according to a standard. That's the stoichomen variety. And I think for our Christian walk, that's why I love this phrase, walk in the Spirit. It's got these two dimensions. On the one hand, the Spirit is with us all the time. And we need to walk day by day, step by step with the Spirit. It's progressive. But we also need to walk according to the Spirit's standard, as revealed in the Word of God. Walk in holiness. And as we put those two together, that becomes a metaphor for what it means to walk in the Spirit. So what we have are three commands. And with this I close. And three applications. Don't quench the Spirit of God. Remember that the body of Christ is central to your spiritual growth. You can't grow in isolation. And don't quench the Spirit and the gifts. The application to our mouth. Don't grieve the Spirit. Remember of all of the things that displease the Spirit, the things we say to one another, the hatred, the anger, the malice, that grieves Him most of all. Remember in Proverbs, there are six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination. You know how many of those relate to the the tongue? Three of the seven have to do with lying and sowing discord. There's no reference to murder. Well, wait, maybe there is. No reference to sexual sin. It's our mouths. And thirdly, walk in the Spirit. Enjoy a daily, step-by-step experience with the Lord. And walk according to His holy standard. Tomorrow, we'll look at the fourth command. Be spirit-filled. And some of the implications it has for us. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you mostly for the gift of your Holy Spirit. You didn't need to send him. You didn't need to make the promise that he would abide in us forever. And yet you have given this precious gift of yourself, your spirit. To walk with us, who loves us, who is grieved by what we say, and who gives us gifts to serve you. May our relationship with the Spirit of God deepen as we grow in our love for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.